Well, for those of you that are here for the very first time, again, I want to welcome you. Welcome to Vine Community Church. We are honored that you would give us part of your Sunday morning. You're stepping into what has almost been a full year. Actually, the first week in February will be a full year of our sort of jaunt through the gospel of John. We have begun a journey of looking at every single verse and every single story and nuance that is packed in John's gospel. And we have made it to week 41. We've taken some breaks here and there, but we're in week 41. And today we're going to wrap up chapter 10. And as I've mentioned, every time we do this, and I, I reiterate this just in case you have come for the first time, or maybe this is only your second week or whatever, but I say this each week because I want you to understand that the nature of John's gospel is wholly different than the other gospels. John is not interested in telling the history of Jesus. He is interested in you knowing Jesus as God's son. It is a theological argument for the incarnation. John wants us to know that Jesus is in fact God in the flesh. And so his entire gospel, everything is pointing to that truth. Every story, um, every character, every interaction is pointing to the reality that Jesus is in fact God. And that is all that John is concerned with. In fact, the majority of his book, as we're about to see next week, is leading us to the last week in the life of Jesus, where he spends nine full chapters of one, on one week in the life of Christ that he wants us to see and understand um, that Jesus is God. And so it's a wholly different gospel. And so it's theologically rich and deep and powerful because of that singular purpose. And we've seen several waves happen in, in John's gospel. We've seen Jesus presented theologically as the logos, right, as the word of God. We've seen Jesus presented as this traveling other teacher that's teaching things that are, are different and that are, are with power and authority. And then we see Jesus begin to have this kind of confrontation with the Jewish leadership. And for the past several months, that's where we've spent the arc of our time is in Jesus' confrontation with the Jewish leadership, with the Jewish leadership essentially is livid. They're furious because Jesus not only is calling into question their very way of life, the things that he's saying are putting him on par, if not calling himself God, and they'd had enough. And we are going to wrap up chapter 10 and see sort of the last moment in these contentious arguments or fights or frustrations that are bubbling up with this worldly anger. And then we're going to see Jesus shift to having this sort of pastoral nature towards his followers. And then we're going to step into the last, last week the life of Christ. We began chapter 10 a few weeks ago by looking at an, an encounter, an engagement that started back in chapter 9 when Jesus healed a blind man. The guy was blind, Jesus gave him sight, and everything kind of began to get real topsy-turvy. The blind guy didn't know who Jesus was, but he knew that someone had given him sight, and so the Pharisees seized him and asked who it was, and he said, I don't know, it was that guy that everybody talks about, Jesus, the one that does all those healings. And, and uh, the Pharisees looked at this blind guy, and they said, we want you to give praise to God alone, not to Jesus, because we know that Jesus is a sinner. And the blind guy goes, all I know is that I once was blind, and now I have sight. And they throw him out of their presence. Jesus comes up, and he finds this guy, and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the guy goes, well, I actually don't know who he is. And Jesus says, it's me. And he said, then yes, I believe. And it says that he worshiped him. And what we saw at the end of chapter 9 was that Jesus was loving and caring for those that were within his fold, that he loved the people of God. And that their vision was becoming clear, but the Pharisees were becoming blinder and blinder. And they were furious, and they, they confronted Jesus, right? And they essentially said, who are you and what gives you this right? And then we saw for the past two weeks Jesus using three metaphors, to basically show the Jewish people, or really the leaders, that they were not the true leadership of God's people. 
And he talked in these, these metaphors of gates and of sheep and shepherds and all these kind of things, basically to point out to them that they weren't the true shepherds of God's people because they were thieves and robbers. And they actually followed the direction of the ultimate thief of thieves, Satan himself, because they were actually his children. And Jesus gets very direct with them and they lose their minds. And we saw at the end of last week, they thought he was demon possessed and raving mad and they try and seize him and they can't, right? And so that's kind of where we left off. And this last part of chapter 10, some time passes from last week to this week. And we're going to see the last of these sort of contentious arguments and frustrations and fights. And then we're going to be stepping into the last week in the life of Christ. And the book changes dramatically. We go from the book of signs, which is the first 11, 12 chapters of the book, um, to the book of wonders, which is going to essentially lead us into the death and resurrection of Jesus. So if you've got your Bible, why don't you open up to chapter 10. All that to get us here, the Pharisees are still mad. All right, so that's kind of where that boils down to. So let's get to chapter 10, verse 22. And we're going to pull out some stuff today that's Really, really important theologically. Probably the, the, some of the most powerful theological statements that ever fall from the lips of Christ fall at this part of chapter 10, and they're really important for us to know. So before we do that, let's take a moment and let's pray, and then we're going to jump in those verses this morning and unpack them. Lord, we are grateful that we can gather in this place, and we're reminded this morning that we are linked together with other believers around the world because of our common love for Christ. Lord, we may feel divided at times from denomination to denomination to church to church, but the truth is we are united in heart by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we remember this morning those believers that are gathered around the world, those that are up and down our street and our country, but those that are gathered in every corner and space of the world. Lord, our friends in Thailand or Guatemala or Africa or China, friends that we know and support and those that we don't. Lord, we are grateful that you unite believers in time and space through Jesus Christ. Well, we recognize, too, that we can't come to you on our own. We recognize, too, Lord, that we can't understand truth on our own. You are the revealer of truth, and you are the drawer of people. And so, Lord, we ask that you would draw us into your presence, and you would reveal truth to us this morning. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you this morning, knowing full well that we can't work our way to God or we can't learn anything on our own about him. He has to show us. Ask God to teach your heart this morning. As we do each week, take a moment and pray for someone beside you, even if you don't know their name. Maybe it's your husband or your wife or your kiddo, or maybe it's just someone you've never seen before. Pray that God would move in them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. As I say each week, everything that unfolds this morning is not about you or for your entertainment. Be in the habit of praying for other people, that God would move in them. He would save them. He would draw them. He would convict them. Pray for the people around you this morning. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified and exalted, that you would teach our hearts, and that your word that is living and active would penetrate our spirit, and that it would move in us and convict and empower and encourage. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So we're going to wrap up chapter 10, starting in verse 22 this morning, and then we're going to move into some really cool new stuff starting next week. But this is what happens at the end of chapter 10, verse 22. So then came the feast of dedication in Jerusalem. It was winter, 
and Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father has set apart at his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy, because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do what my father does. But if I do it, even though you who do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. Here he stayed and many people came to him and they said, though John never performed miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many placed their belief in Jesus. So there's a whole lot there, and we're going to really focus on that middle section, but kind of look at what's going on. So some time has passed since that last encounter that Jesus had where he'd been sort of laying out those three miracles. Some time has passed from the healing or from the, the giving the sight to the blind guy. Jesus has left Jerusalem. He apparently has come back for the festival of dedication, and it's wintertime, and he's walking around the eastern side of the temple where Solomon's colonnade was. And it was basically two long rows of marble columns roofed by cedar, and we've actually actually seen Jesus here before. And we see in Acts that this is where Paul and some of the other apostles go and preach because that's where Jesus spent his time. And so he goes back in Jerusalem and he's walking around Solomon's colonnade and he is again confronted by the Jews. And most likely the Jews that are referenced here are the same ones that Jesus had spoken to just previously in our text from last week and the week before. It refers to the Jewish leadership and influencers, the Pharisees, most likely some Sadducees, and any of those leadership that had influence. And they confront Jesus. They basically come to him again after all they've gone through and they make a demand. It's not really a question. It's more of a demand. And they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly, right? Now, it's interesting that they make this demand because if you've been with us for any period of time, Jesus has essentially been telling them and showing them for weeks and weeks and months and months and chapters and chapters that this is who he was. But Jesus always and most often didn't use the term Messiah. He often referred to himself as the Son of Man, right? The Christ and the Messiah was the one that was prophesied about in the Old Testament, the anointed one of God that was coming. And the reason Jesus often didn't use the Messiah word is because the people did not understand the idea of the Messiah the way the Old Testament and God was bringing the Messiah to be, right? If you remember, the people understood Messiah to be coming as a warrior king. 
The Israelites were under Roman oppression and they wanted a Messiah sent by God in the line of David to come riding in on a stallion or in a chariot, overthrow the Romans, and reestablish Israel as a political and national power. And so every time the people tried to make Jesus that Messiah, he resisted. Now, Jesus often told his disciples and like the woman at the well in private that he was in fact the Messiah, but he pushed back against that definition of the people, and rightly so, because that's not the kind of Messiah the Old Testament talks about. It talks about a suffering servant, right? Isaiah talks about one that must suffer for the people of Israel, that Jesus was coming not, as we know, riding on the back of a stallion or a chariot, but on the back of a baby donkey, not to deliver Israel from the Roman oppression, but to deliver people, God's people, his chosen sheep, those he's called and loved from the hands of sin and death. So the Messiah of the people that they longed for and wanted a political king was not, right, what Jesus came to do. And so the Pharisees, they basically corner Jesus and they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? Tell us plainly if you are that Messiah. And Jesus answered them in this really powerful, deep, theologically rich statement, which we're going to get to and unpack here in a moment. He says, I did tell you, right? But you do not believe the miracles I do in my Father's name because... They speak, they speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. He says, listen, I have told you. And not only have I told you, I have shown you. Miracle after miracle, sign after sign, wonder after wonder, all done in the name of my Father. He gives me the authority to do all those things. Even the blind guy I healed, God the Father, my Father, has given me the ability to do that. And you do not believe. Why? Because you are not my sheep. Now, you've got to understand, if you were here the past two weeks, this would make a lot of sense because Jesus has basically said through metaphors that he is the good and true shepherd and that his sheep he calls by name and his sheep know his voice and they know him and he knows them. And they won't follow those, right, whose voice they don't know. And this time Jesus looks at these Pharisees and these Jewish leaders and he says, not only are you not the true leaders of God's people, but you are not my sheep. You don't believe because you're not mine, right? So he says, I have told you, you don't believe and you're not mine. You want to know about my sheep? He says, my sheep listen to my voice, right? I know them, they follow me, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. The definition of my sheep, and we explored these the past two weeks, so we won't get into it too much, but my sheep listen to me, right? They know my voice, I know them. And he added last week, they know me, they follow me. I give them eternal, eternal life, and they never perish. This is what my sheep look like. And basically what Jesus is saying to them is, you are none of these things. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one, and the Jewish leaders lose their minds, Right? Again, again, because it's not the first time it's happened, they picked up stones to kill him. They basically grabbed rocks right there in the temple courts, right there in the outer edge of the temple on the eastern wall under Solomon's colonnade. They gathered rocks off the dirt to essentially try and kill him. And Jesus says, I have shown you many incredible miracles done in my father's name. Which of these do you stone me for? Like, why are you going to kill me? All these miracles I've done, name the one that you're going to kill me for. And they say, we're not killing you for the miracles. We're not denying those. They actually didn't deny that they'd seen Jesus do the miraculous. We're not killing you for those, but we're killing you because you blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim 
to be God, which of course they have opposite, right? They're saying that Jesus, a mere man, claimed to be God. But if you've been with us from John chapter one, you know that that's not what happened. Jesus is not a man that was made God. Jesus is God who was made in the form of man. They had the opposite. They thought and were thinking that Jesus, who was born this mere man, is claiming to be God. But what God has done is he has broken into humanity as God, taking on the flesh of a man. And the Jewish leaders were missing the fact that this was God who had showed up in their presence and not some raving lunatic that was just claiming to be God. And that's what would lead Jesus to the cross. They couldn't deny the miraculous things, but what they believed was he was just some lunatic that said he was God. And what Jesus is saying is that I'm actually God who became a man. And then he answers in this really sort of complicated kind of statement, and I won't get into it too much, but I'll give it to you in a nutshell. He basically says to them, listen, is it not written in the Old Testament or in your law, not completely in the Old Testament, in your law is what he says, that you can call people, or that I've called people gods, and he uses a lowercase g. He says, how much more powerful is it, right, that the one God who became man, right, be called the true God, capital G. So he basically does a play on words and say to them, you know, in your law, you call people, regular old people, gods with a lowercase g. But here I am, God, the true, the very God standing in your presence. How much more legitimate is that I call myself God with a capital G? And he says that, and he says, so when you accuse me, right, of blasphemy and said that I'm God's son, do not believe me, right? Don't just believe my words unless you see the miracles. But even if I do it, it's not enough for you to believe, right? Just know and understand that I do it in the name of the Father. So Jesus is intentionally drawing his connection back to the Father. And it says, again, they tried to seize him, but Jesus escaped their grasp because he's ninja Jesus. <laughs> We've seen this time and time again, right? Why? Because it's not his time. God is never going to be captured, and we learned this last week, and overthrown and killed by men. Jesus was not murdered, right? Murder would imply that there's a victim. Jesus lays down his life voluntarily for humanity. It wasn't his time. God has anointed this time. It wasn't this time for him to die, and so he eludes their grasp. And he goes back across the Jordan to the place where they had been baptizing, where John did a bunch of stuff in the early days. People come flocking from all over the place. And even though John didn't do any miraculous signs himself, right, they realize that John's words, and if you remember way back in chapter 3, John's word, John the witness, John the Baptist, better name, John the witness, that his words about Jesus were actually true, and people placed their faith in Jesus right in that place. Now, all that to basically get us to a place where the anger and the contentment and the frustration and the hatred that the Jewish leaders had for Jesus is at an all-time high. They're trying to kill him. They want him dead at any cost because they believe that he is a mere man that is claiming to be God. And they're livid and furious at that because he calls their very life into question. But time and time and time and time again, Jesus has said, I and the Father are one. In essence, we are are the same. I am God. The miracles I do are evidence of my deity, right? Because I do them in the name of the Father, and he gives me the authority. And that's where all this sort of boils down to. But what I want to pay real attention to this morning, we're going to spend a part of our time, is in that statement Jesus makes to their demand. So they demand, why will you keep us in suspense, or don't keep us in suspense any longer? Tell us plainly, are you the Christ? 
And Jesus' response to them is really, really important and powerful. And it plays an important role in our understanding of our own salvation, the nature of the relationship the Father has with the Son. They say, tell us plainly. And Jesus says, I've told you plainly. I've even shown you through these miracles, right? But you don't believe me because you're not my sheep. And then he gives those four things that we talked about last week about kind of the nature of the sheep to the good and true shepherd, right? The sheep, are, the sheep hear his voice, they know him, they follow him, right? He gives them eternal life. All that we did last week, so we won't spend any time there. But he adds one to this list that he didn't say last week, and that's where I want us to focus on. In verse 29, he says this. He says, I give them, talking about his sheep, eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. So my sheep... They listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. So all of us at some point in time most likely have wrestled with the idea of can we lose our salvation? Is there anything that we can do as a follower of Christ when I truly put my trust and faith in him that I can lose that? Then I wonder if my lack of faith or my doubts or my struggles or my moral failures or the mistakes I continue to make will ever have God look at me and just go, you know what, I just, I'm kind of done with you, truthfully. Like, that's enough. Enough is enough. You obviously aren't going to want this or keep this, and so you no longer are saved. And at some point in time, most of us have wrestled with that idea. Is God just so disappointed in me that ultimately at some point in time he just gives up? And he just says, Trev, I, I mean, seriously, the same thing over and over and over again? Like, I'm just done with you. And we've asked ourselves that question, and it boils down to this. Can we lose our eternal security, our salvation? And the reason this is a really incredible, important, incredibly important theological statement is because if the answer is yes to that, then we're in real danger. Because left up to our own devices, every single one of us with the wavings and wanderings of our heart will fall away. There is no way in good conscience and good faith that we can constantly have faith enough and the moral aptitude enough to keep ourselves on the right side of saving grace. And so Jesus adds this to the list. He says, my sheep, they're mine, they have eternal life, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. This doctrine actually, from a Reformed or Calvinistic perspective, is called the perseverance of the saints. So if you look at it from a Reformed theological perspective, it falls into this uh, concept or this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And what that doctrine says is that once you are truly saved, that once God has taken the initiation with your heart and saved you, rescued you and redeemed you, though you may have faltering faith in your own heart, though you may have questions, though you may have doubts, though you may make mistakes and failures, and though you may wander, ultimately God will never allow you to escape his saving grace. Once he has saved you, you are always saved. That though your faith and lack of understanding and questions that surround your heart, those, though those things are real, they don't remove you from God's grace and salvation, that once you have been saved, you are always and forever saved. And as Jesus says here, no one can snatch you, can steal you, no thing can take you out of God's incredible loving grace. What it doesn't mean is that you will always have perfect faith. 
What it doesn't mean is that once you are saved, every question in your life will never bubble up to the surface and you will never wonder if God is real or never wonder why these things happen or never backslide or never struggle. What it means is that God has called you and saved you and even in the middle of all of your mistakes and backsliding, God will never let you go. And it is the most beautiful and true theological doctrine in all of scripture. Because without it, every single one of us is in danger of despair and death as followers of Christ. Because if left up to us to keep our own salvation in good standing with God based on our good and true faith and moral aptitude, you and I will be disastrous failures. But the perseverance of the saints means that God has called you and what he has called and seized, he will never let go. You cannot outrun God. You cannot outpace God. You cannot outquestion God. And it's very clear when Jesus says this. He's essentially saying all through those three metaphors, I have called my sheep, right? I have called them. I have brought them out of the pen. I know them. I allow them to know me and I give them eternal life. Perseverance of the saints goes along with the idea that God has taken initiation with those that he has called and he has drawn them to himself. And what God draws to himself, no one will take away. Satan does not win. God does not let go what he has drawn to him. And the reason this is so incredibly beautiful, right, is because all of the power and all of the initiation and all of the responsibility is on God. It is not on the sheep. It is not on, you to, not on you to stay within the confines of the pen. And if somehow in your life, after giving your life to Jesus and having him rescue and save you, you wander or drift or falter, or you have someone in your life who you know is saved and you watch them give their life to Jesus and they're struggling and they're faltering, that they are not escaping God's incredible, loving grace. They have been saved and they have been redeemed and no one can snatch them out of the hands of Christ. That doctrine, perseverance of the saints, that once you are saved, you are always saved, is incredibly important. If you have it, you can never lose it. If you lose it, it means you never had it. That's essentially what that boils down to. But Jesus does something really cool here at the end. He actually says it in a different way. He says, I know my sheep. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Then he says in verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. So Jesus first says, I know my sheep. I call them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Then he follows it up by saying, my father has given them to me. He is greater than everyone, and no one can snatch them out of his hand. So which is it? Can they not snatch them out of Jesus' hand, or can they not snatch them out of the father's hand? Right? And of course, the answer is incredibly beautiful and simple. It's both. No one, no thing, no person, nothing, no spiritual emphasis, no drifting can snatch them neither away from the Son or the Father. Why? John 10.30. Because I and the Father are one. You see what Jesus says here is he says that what is secure in my grasp is secure in the Father's grasp because I am one in essence with the Father. So when Jesus says that I call my sheep, he's saying God is calling those and God is greater than all, and we are one in essence, and no one can snatch those sheep away. That means we are secure in Christ, and at the same time secure in the Father. What we're seeing here is a foundation for this full-blown doctrine of the Trinity. 
that we don't worship three separate gods, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but we worship three in one. That God in one essence is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and three different persons, but they are all one united. And it's a doctrine that unites evangelical followers of Christ all over the world. That we don't have three separate gods we worship, that Jesus wasn't some God over here that was just sort of mentally connected to the true God, but they in sense and in essence were one. I and the Father are one. And the reason I say that this passage is one of the most theologically important in all of Scripture is because it defines the nature of the Father and the Son, the oneness. And then it defines and helps us understand our true salvation in that oneness. Here's the thing and what it boils down to for me. There are times in my life when I just wonder, I just wonder, all of this, everything around me, my own faith, my own understanding, my own desperation. Like, is it all real, true? I have these doubts in my faith. I wonder if God's there, if he's, if he's out there, if he's listening, can he hear me? Sometimes I forget that he did something for me yesterday because my sinful nature rages up inside of me and says, God has forgotten me. Or I look around me and I, I see the way the world seems to be falling apart at different places and I wonder, Right? And I have doubts and I have fears and I have failures and I'm very real in all of those aspects. And if those things are what holds me to being saved, then I am forever lost. Because the reality is my own moral aptitude and my own faith will never hold me secure because it's shaky at best. But what Jesus says is that I'm not held to my eternal life that he has called me to by any of that. I'm held by the Father, and I'm held in his hand. Jesus says that no one can snatch them out of my hands. Think about that imagery that Jesus is saying about the good and true shepherd. He's not saying that I gather my sheep and I put them in the pen, and no one can steal them from the pen. He's saying that when I secure a sheep, a person, that person is secure in my hands, the very hands of God, and nothing can remove them from the almighty, all-powerful, majestic, holy hands of God. It means that your life as a follower of Christ, as someone who has truly given their life and faith to Jesus Christ, can never be snatched, seized, or stolen from the Father's hand by anything or anyone. Spiritual questions, doubts, fears, moral failures, whatever, cannot be snatched. God will not let go of what God has called and secured. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, this is the greatest news you will ever hear. That no matter where your life leads and what you do, right, you can't outrun God. He will never let you go. And the reason that's beautiful, right, is because it lets you rest. It lets you rest. Our hearts that beat a thousand miles a minute, right? Trying to wonder and wonder and hope upon hope that just maybe when I die, this is all real. We can rest in the truth that when we've been called by Jesus and saved by him, it is forever. And we can put our hope in that, right? Those that we love and that we've seen saved, and we can put our hope in the fact that they are secure in the hands of the Father. And it is perhaps the greatest news ever because Jesus was not just some moral traveling rabbi. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. This is what we can rest in, that Jesus loves you and he came for you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for that eternal truth 
that is so deeply ingrained in Scripture that in the midst of all of our questions or doubts or fears or failures or longings or runnings or whatever, you are a God who calls and a God who secures and a God who never lets go. And that Jesus, as the Jews said and claimed that you were a man who claimed to be God, Lord, we reject that lie. And we rest that you are God who came to be man. To lay down his life voluntarily for his sheep. That those who put their faith and trust in him, who are called by your name, will never be taken from your hands. Because they know your voice, you know them, they know you. They follow you and nothing can snatch them from you. God, I am grateful that my eternal security rests in you. And I'm grateful for anyone in here who has given their life to Christ. True faith surrendered their life to Jesus, that their faith is secure, that their life is eternally secure. Lord, if there are those of us in here this morning that have never given our life to Christ, that long for that eternal security, I encourage them to come down and visit with me and let me share the truth that has essentially saved my life. That you are not some mere man who claimed to be God but that you are God who came to rescue your sheep, those you love, and those you call. Lord, as we close our time in worship, I pray that you would hear the, the depth of our gratitude from within our heart, the cry that we sing to you, Lord, grateful for the way that you have saved and rescued and redeemed, Lord. Hear us as we close our time in worship this morning. Let's stand together and worship the Lord.